Welcome! This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology, presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William & Mary Law School. I'm your host, Taylor Treese, Buzzwell Postgrad Fellow and Assistant Director for Research at CLCT. Today's going to be an exciting episode all about blockchain and evidence, and with me to discuss it are not one, but two very special guests, two of our CLCT staff members and law students, Alex Ashrafi and Scott Meyer, welcome. Uh, Thank you, Taylor. Happy to be here. So uh, this is going to be, there's a lot to talk about in this area. So let's go ahead and get started. Scott, I'm going to kick things off with you. First question, question of the hour, what is blockchain? Absolutely. Uh, So first of all, I want to emphasize that, you know, as we go through this, we're going to be giving about the 30 foot, 30,000 foot view of this technology, you know, I encourage listeners to go and do some independent research if they really want to get into the weeds. But for our purposes, 30,000 feet is more than enough to touch on all the subjects we're going to hit and also how, you know, blockchain, quote unquote, abuts against the actual law, which I think is a little more interesting to perhaps our listeners. Um, So at a very simple level, blockchain is a decentralized database or a shared ledger, if you will. And so to understand that, I'm going to use kind of an imperfect analogy. Uh, Most folks have a bank statement. And so, you know, your bank records, you records when you send or receive money. Um, If you imagine a blockchain, instead of a, a centralized bank having that record, imagine if you and then everyone else in your neighborhood had a copy of your bank statement. And so I want to emphasize here because there's a little nuance. It's not that they all have access to your bank statement through your bank. It's that they each have an individual copy of your bank statement. And so basically, you know, as an example, every time you maybe wanted to send a check or to uh, deposit something, everyone in your neighborhood would check their copy of your bank statement and say, okay, I think this is good, or no, this doesn't look right. And then using majority rules, the neighborhood would decide, are we going to allow this transaction, or are we not going to allow it? And so, you know, in this example, the neighborhood kind of represents a blockchain, or the blockchain network, so to speak. Um, You know, it's not a perfect analogy, but basically, that's what the idea of a shared ledger is. You've got one ledger, that lots of people have. That makes sense. And, and like you said, even though there may be some nuances where that's different from blockchain, I think that that's a really good way to begin to understand how that technology works. But why is it called blockchain other than you know a ledger or some, some other title? Why, why do we settle on blockchain for this technology? That's a great question. And I think um, part of the reason that blockchain is maybe so popular is because it does have kind of this you know, like this um, esoteric feel. You get yeah. to say blockchain. You're not really sure what it means. Uh, but it's it not sounds a, techie. It, absolutely. It sounds some, like something cool. Um, right. So blocks in the blockchain just refer to batches of data. Now, usually that's transactional data. So, you know, using the example about, you know, you and your neighbors creating a blockchain network, a block might contain, you know, all the transactions that you and your neighbors had in the last 
five minutes or something. Mm -hmm. I'm just using a, a rough estimate here. But so basically a block is just a batch of transactional data. It doesn't have to be transaction data, but for, for most cases it is going to be. Um, so when you think of block, you can just think of kind of like a bucket that's holding data. Right. And so every time a block is created um, and then uh, quote unquote validated, so in that, we go back to the example, you and your neighbors all vote, and they mm -hmm. say, yeah, this transaction is good. You guys vote on enough transactions, a batch or a block is created. Now that block is going to be added to the blockchain. And so we, we kind of get what the blocks are. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to talk about why it's called a chain. The reason it's a chain is because each block references the block before it. So... Okay. Uh, kind of simple analogy if you have a blockchain with fly five blocks block five is going to reference block four block four is going to reference block three and so on and so forth until the very first block so so it keeps track of both the nature of the transaction and also the the sequence of the transactions right? absolutely and that's a really good point to hit on that sequence is what's so important. I think we'll maybe touch on it later in the episode too, but that sequence is what provides sort of this immutability of mm. the blockchain. Because as you can imagine, if blockchain five references every blockchain before it, then right. if you change blockchain five, everything that came after five, for instance, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, mm -hmm. those are all suddenly going to be broken because of that reference. And so the chain is going to be broken and so you're absolutely right that that linking is what creates sort of a time you know of what order these transactions have come in and part of what makes it at least in the literature and what people talk about with blockchain one of the reasons why people like to use it um, so i'd like to talk a little bit more about that and you know people talk about the benefits of blockchain so really when would someone want to choose a blockchain, especially keeping in mind, you know, our, our perspective as lawyers, when would somebody, a client, a business, ourselves even, want to choose blockchain over something else? Absolutely. So uh, really, blockchain was initially created, and I don't think we can acknowledge blockchain without acknowledging its initial creation for the use of cryptocurrencies. Mm. And so the original thought was, how can we uh, alleviate what's known as the third party problem and you know it has kind of a fancy name but it's actually quite simple so for instance you know everybody likes to shop online you know you might use Amazon whatever so when you're online you don't necessarily know who you're sending your money to for instance if you purchase something off Amazon um, you're sending your money to the credit card company mm -hmm. and then the credit card company is going to send it either to Amazon or to whoever the seller is, but you don't really care. You just know, you know, credit card company has my money. They'll send it to whoever needs it and right. I'm going to get my stuff. The third party problem comes in is that credit card company or, you know, an online banking, your bank institution or, you know, PayPal even, that third party has to have your information because they need to be able to take from your account and they have to have whoever's receiving the money to be able to put it in that account. And so this comes down to 
you know, do you trust your third party? Now, most mm-hmm. of us trust Visa, MasterCard, so that's not really a problem. But when you want to get into things like anonymous transactions, you can't be anonymous if, you know, Visa knows who you are because they have your account. Right. Um, and so one of the driving reasons for blockchain to be created was to have anonymous transactions uh, between parties online. And so um, when you think of blockchain, uh, most people think of cryptocurrencies because you have anonymous transactions and you have, um, you know, no third party problems. You don't have to trust anyone you can trust in the blockchain to go back to that neighborhood metaphor. All you really have to trust in is majority rules Mm -hmm. because you and all your neighbors look at the blockchain and you say, yep, this checks out. And so as long as, you know, 51% of the blockchain says this is good to go, that means it's good to go. So you don't have to trust a higher power. You don't have to trust the banking institution. You really just trust in the underlying blockchain technology. So that's where we start to get at, you know, some of those buzzwords we hear with blockchain. It's it's immutable, so it's secure. It's decentralized. It's based on trust. It's transparent because everyone gets a copy and can see the transactions that are happening, even if it's not all of the details of the transaction precisely. And so, Alex, feel free to jump in on this, too. That all sounds great, but what's the catch? <laughs> uh well, I, Scott, I remember we were talking uh, sometime before some of the drawbacks to blockchain. For example, I remember you mentioned energy. It oh, takes absolutely. a lot of computing power, so it's not just some magical device or, or <laughs> formula right. you can implement somewhere without any cost. Of course, it has its cost. So you need to figure out how to balance. Are you really getting that much of a benefit versus, you know, is this costing too much computing power that's one thing for example um and that translates into not just you know energy costs but literal costs as well right so i mean for a a business or a law firm that's thinking about using blockchain technology there's there is cost associated even though i think sometimes we think about these tech uh, especially something like a blockchain it's kind of uh, existing it's out on the inter- yeah, existing out on the internet somewhere, um, but you still are incurring costs. Yeah, and managing have, one. Yeah, and you have to figure out how to implement it. You have to first of all understand it and know know what uh you get the right technicians to come in and and apply it to whatever business you're doing. So yeah, there are obviously costs associated with that. Right. I think that's that's absolutely right. Energy costs. Um, just to throw out a few figures, I think uh, currently. The blockchain network um, for Bitcoin alone is consuming something like more than 100 uh, countries, more energy than over 100 countries. And so, you know, this is only increasing, which, you know, it's not really something we think about in the legal profession. But, you know, that ancillary side effect, it's definitely, you know, how do you be a responsible consumer? And is that Mm -hmm. practical from a computing standpoint? Especially when, you know, we don't want to get into the tech game. We're lawyers and we want to know about blockchain. Uh, I think another thing to consider about uh, blockchain is probably more of its applicability. For instance, as you said, you know, that immutability and that transparency, you know, that is very powerful in anonymous transactions because you you know what to look at. You can see the data. But you can imagine certain situations, for instance, um, you know, say a bank transferred over to a blockchain. Now that uh, information 
would be transparent to everyone if it was a public blockchain. Now, I have to add that caveat. Mm -hmm. Maybe they would have a private blockchain. But um, so it does lead into some considerations regarding data privacy. Who who should be able to see data? For, you know, you could also see in a medical context, you know, with some of your personally identifiable uh, information. Definitely. Should that be transitioned over to blockchain? So if I can jump in here, I mean, there are obviously some applications where I know there's a lot of privacy concerns, but there are other areas where you do want everyone to be able to see, uh, you know, know that a certain data is authentic and you know, kind of what I, I looked into is one of the thing in law wise, one of the best applications for that is evidence. You think of oh, evidence absolutely. and you don't, you, you want it to be immutable. You don't, you want to be able to see something and say, this is, this is actually what it is. This wasn't tampered with or anything like that. And right. um, so obviously blockchain has you know, some huge applications to evidence uh, on two fronts. I was going to get to both. First is just, uh, you know, introducing blockchain uh, or rather records held within a blockchain as evidence so the so for example some of the the examples went over securities your real estate transactions even cryptocurrency um, absolutely in fact i i want to bring this up um someone sent me an article yesterday about a uh they actually did a mock trial that uh to try to test to see how uh, blockchain records would be introduced in court actually oh, and oh, wow. a number of lawyers doing this and and the the case had to do with, if I remember the facts right, it was a uh, man who hired a hitman uh, and paid the hitman with Bitcoin. Oh, okay. And the so, anonymous transaction. Yeah, yeah. And you could obviously imagine the prosecution would want to get that evidence in of that transaction to show that he paid him. Yeah. Um, so it was just kind of a test to see how the lawyers try to get this this information in. And I mean, either surprisingly or unsurprisingly, but it really followed the typical rules of evidence. It didn't... You, you, know, you have to go overcome all the normal hurdles, relevancy, hearsay, right. uh, you know, authenticating it. Um, so I don't really think it's that different than normal electronic evidence that, that we've seen the past few decades. And remember, mm -hmm. courts have been adapting to uh, electronic evidence 20 years ago it was was very new. In fact, um, I would if anyone's interested in that and, and how the courts have handled electronic evidence, I, I would recommend looking up a certain opinion by. Uh, this Maryland District Court judge named Paul Grimm. Okay. And I think he wrote this opinion in 2007. And it, I mean, before that, no one really knew how to introduce even simple electronic evidence like emails and that kind of thing. But he right. gave a, you know, he kind of, in his opinion, laid laid out some guidance. And it was really what you'd expect. It's applying the traditional rules like relevance mm -hmm. and hearsay to, um, to this kind of electronic evidence. But since then, they've kind of condensed that and, uh, He's, I know that judge has written a number of other uh, articles on this. Um, I think that's a really interesting also place to transition and start talking about, you know, we've talked about in general terms, some use cases of blockchain. Uh -huh. We're going to start as lawyers seeing this in probably very likely securities litigation, already oh, seeing that in oh, securities yeah. litigation with some of these ICOs, initial coin offerings. Uh, and, and, you know, JP Morgan Chase just announced that they're, they're issuing, uh, 
their own coin, though not yeah. not Everybody's publicly get speaking. On board. Yeah, yeah, and that was part of it is the the surprise of uh, uh, you know the company and CEO being very anti cryptocurrency and doing their own a little different thing where it would be it sounds like it's going to be more on the back end of bank to bank transactions as opposed to something like as um, you know there's there's one smaller country that's looking to transition to all digital almost crypto-based currency um and and that being you know its own set of worms but as we're starting to see more and more of these use cases we're gonna see as you mentioned alex see these issues see inevitably it's like murphy's law inevitably (laughs) something's gonna go wrong we need the law addendum to murphy's law which is and then it ends up in court right Uh, (laughs) so you mentioned how electronic and digital evidence changed the game you know when we had emails we had all those things and we were able Mm -hmm. to apply those traditional rules but there also were changes to the federal rules of evidence that started to acknowledge ways in which electronic and digital evidence is sometimes different than traditional physical tangible pieces of evidence Mm -hmm. so i was wondering if you could alex speak a little bit more and walk us through how the federal rules of evidence is currently handling electronic evidence to start creating a framework for thinking about, all right, to what extent is blockchain going to challenge as we do more of these mock trials and then real trials involving blockchain? What issues might we be starting to face there? Mm-hmm. So um, there's a federal rule of evidence, a federal rule 902, which is called a self, uh, self-authenticating evidence. And just in that title alone, you see that and you might think if you're blockchain minded you might think of that because you say well blockchain is self-authenticating that right. if it falls in the rules of evidence it would fall in there um so 2017 uh they added so this this rule gives a list of all these different types of self-authenticating evidence uh, the, some of the mm-hmm. more traditional ones like ancient documents or old newspaper uh old newspaper articles so in other words if you have some article from 100 years ago in a new local newspaper there's you pretty much know that that's legitimate. Nobody, right. nobody really tampered with that. And so what it says is, is it authenticates itself. Um, and also we struggle to have, um, you know, with ancient documents or something like that. Yeah, You're yeah. also not going to have the ability to call someone into court and say, yes, in fact, this is, or I did write this. Exactly. You know, yeah. You know? It's just impractical uh, to do that. And, and, uh, and also another, another one, which I want to touch on is the, uh, the regular business activity because some of the new electronic evidence exceptions mm. going to that and the idea of that is you have a you have a business keeping books and they're not going to lie about their own books they're going to you know keep regular uh business records they really have no reason no incentive to fabricate those so their that, own books yeah yeah <laughs> exactly uh so so in 2017 um there were two new exceptions added for electronically generated evidence and also data that was copied from some electronic source like a hard drive or other device and essentially what i mean you could already get electronic evidence in before this um, but what that did is it made a little easier for lawyers to get electronic evidence in before you would have to have a live witness to come in and authenticate that evidence Mm -hmm. it wasn't self-authenticating but with that new exception electronic data that falls under one of those two categories you Essentially, before the trial, uh, you could 
get an affidavit authenticating that Certi- certification exactly. of authenticity kind of thing yeah and you need to go through all the other hoops of course you need to show it's not hearsay and all and right, normally right. if if it falls under that category we'll usually apply um to rule 8036 which is the the regular conducted business activity so if you hit mm-hmm. all those all those marks then it will come in anyway and um and so you you present this you present the affidavit and, and you hit those those um Criteria. requirements criterions yeah. and then if the the other side wants to object to its authenticity you can and then you could go through the more traditional formal process of having right a live witness come in and testify about that so but these new rules alleviate some of it, at least yeah, that they, last it, stage so okay it's it is self-authenticating it makes the it just streamlines the process as we've adjusted to being more familiar and more comfortable mm-hmm. with using digital evidence right? exactly exactly so on a blockchain um you might look at that and you might think well maybe blockchain or records in a blockchain would fall under this this category and it's it's not totally clear uh, i i will say that one state vermont has passed a statute that essentially it specifies very similar um criteria of mm. the federal rules and it says it actually says directly that block any blockchain evidence would fall under oh, wow. rule 902 <laughs> and uh and of course you have to go through the same hurdles as normal electronic evidence but they they one of the reasons for that is Vermont is very proactive in uh, in trying to encourage more blockchain in their state. So I think, for example, they they have some municipalities using it to keep uh, real estate records. And, oh, very and interesting. Like one of the applications is um, you know to show the line of 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 a deed to show like who, oh. who controls the property and uh, and other kinds of real estate tra- transactions too. You see that so. You know, Vermont is at least uh, uh, predicting that, as you said, you know, ultimately Murphy's Law, these things are going to work their way in court. So we might as well, if we're encouraging blockchain in other ways into our state, we might as well have a, you know, an in for that kind of evidence Mm -hmm. in our courts. And as you were talking about, you know, it, it sounds exactly like there's a way to do it there's a way to introduce this evidence as the rules exist mm-hmm. so you know which this um crypto mock trial demonstrated but like you said there are other things that can still be done maybe things changes that are made within the federal rules of evidence that either can be made to streamline the process make it easier to introduce that type of evidence as we trust it become more familiar with it or likewise as we start to identify some issues with blockchain technology Mm -hmm. like scott you mentioned earlier the the majority rule and essentially there you know if the neighborhood decides to conspire against you or if enough people say you know, we're the the transaction is A. We're going to say it's B, um, and we've see, started to see that happen with um, even major crypto tokens like yeah, Ethereum think, and things yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, that I think the traditional sense was notion was if the distributed databases, if the if the blockchain network is too big, the majority problem becomes more of a non-problem because there's just too many people. You can't really reach that majority. And we're seeing that that's not true, um, which, again, as as a legal concern, starts to spark these questions of, OK, it is much more realistic to think that we're going to see these things in court. So likewise, I think as, a, as an evidentiary issue, um, when we're thinking about self-authenticating documents, you're so right, Alex, that 
on the one hand, it seems like the nature of blockchain technology does exactly that, but we may still have some of those authenticity concerns um, that may even require new rules to be created for blockchain in the other direction. If we have enough instances where we where we are concerned, um, or like, in, for instance, the business record exception that you mentioned, where even or some of these um, the, within the federal rules, other other places do this, too, where if there is a reason to doubt it, you know, you, there's still kind of that escape valve, uh, a valve to say, OK, we have some other reason to doubt the veracity of this document as what it purports to be. And in that case, you can still challenge the admissibility of the evidence, even if the rules otherwise would permit it on, you know, the technical basis. So do you think that that may be something that that the law would need to adapt to? Or are people talking about that that you've seen? You mean it going the other way where you have yeah, does it more. seem as, you know, you, you've done more of the research in this, but have you have you seen places, Vermont seems to be very pro-blockchain. Has, well, has there been too much discussion on the other direction? Well, it's just that I, I don't see how it's really that different from a regular digital evidence. I mean, you can yeah. fabricate digital evidence and you True. still need to go through all the typical evidentiary hurdles to authenticate it and show that it's, it's relevant and isn't hearsay. And also, um, I think you would have to do the same for blockchain. So even if the blockchain was hacked, the blockchain was hacked and mm -hmm. I know that's hard to do, but say it was, um, you know, that, that could, I think if it was, you, it would fail under one of the other areas of evidence. So right. it's not, it's not that you know, it's a blockchain. We know it's good. Let it in. You still got to do everything else as you mm -hmm. would with normal evidence. So I don't really know that's a problem so much. Right. And just to piggyback off that, I think uh, it really comes down to almost a philosophical discussion, um, because at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. I mean, whether the courts are relying on older rules that, you know, they kind of have to squint at to see how they work, mm -hmm. or if they make more, you know, proactive rules that are specifically to address this, as in the case with Vermont, I mean, nine times out of ten, the court's going to get it right. You know, the, the right thing is going to happen. It's just... What do you point to to figure it out? And I, I'm right. actually reminded uh, in the 90s when the Internet, you know, suddenly e-commerce became a thing and there were all these tests of, you know, we're going to have to fundamentally change the face of the law. How do we, you know, people are right. interacting with websites. Yeah. How do we account for that stuff? And, you know, there was this big spike, you know, we have to do something. And then it turned out, uh, you know, we, we can pretty much rely on what we had already written. We might have to make a few modifications, but... You know, communication is communication, you know, mm -hmm. commerce is commerce. And so having it on a new platform versus having it, you know, via snail mail is, you know, largely interchangeable. And so I think blockchain, it absolutely does have some new features. It's absolutely a unique product. But, you know, I, I'm not sure that we can say, oh, this is going to change the face of law itself. So I think uh, Alex is probably absolutely right that, you know, more moderate approaches yeah. Correct. yeah and really it's just it's just like the the those two exceptions in rule 902 i talked about i think if anything it would just make make it a little easier to bring blockchain in so you wouldn't have to have an, a blockchain expert to come in and essentially tell the court and jury this is what blockchain is this is why it's good <laughs> right. and i'm authenticating this and that can still happen if there's an objection it's just you know if there is an objection and both parties agree that 
yeah, this is authentic evidence. This looks good. You don't need to go through the, the whole rigmarole to do that. So right. I think that just, just as we see more of it, it, the current rules and specifically in Vermont, because they address this directly, it would just expedite the process just a little bit. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think that you both are entirely right. And that's, that's such an interesting, um, interesting discussion on that point, because like you said, we have rules that worked fairly well and we did find that in, and we're seeing that perhaps with this crypto mock trial, the rules themselves are adapting fairly well. And right. the, the updates that you were talking about were fairly recent, even though digital electronic evidence has been around, like you said, mm -hmm. for quite a while. So I think that something that is worth acknowledging in this type of discussion is Perhaps it's not so new, even though it feels very new right now. That oh, feeling of we have this new technology. What are we going to do about it? This is going to change the world. It's going <laughs> to change how we relate to everything. But as you said, people thought about that when the Internet hit the scene. Um, and perhaps it's just that combination, as we call it, the ecosystem of AI, blockchain, IoT, all of these things happening concurrently oh, absolutely. That, that exacerbates that feeling. But at the same time, the Internet was revolutionary in the same way people are predicting these technologies will be. But we have been able to cope with some, like you said, some changes. So with that, I want to transition a little bit too to your second point, because you also made a great point earlier, Alex, talking about these Vermont, for instance, who's used blockchain, not so much in the context of introducing it as evidence into trials exclusively, but also using blockchain as a means for courts to build secure evidentiary records, land records, other type of more administrative functions that the courts also serve in addition to being, you know, where the litigation happens. Mm -hmm. So are there any courts current, other than Vermont, you mentioned, currently doing this? Uh, well, I, I don't I actually don't think Vermont is doing this in their courts, per se. I think it, mm -hmm. in other areas of government, they are doing yeah. it. Um, but I don't I don't know of any American courts that are using blockchain more as a tool to uh, particularly the I mean, again, the main function of it would be to uh solidify that the chain of custody so whatever right. so when you put a certain piece of evidence into into the blockchain and then you you get it out sometime later you know that that's the exact same piece of evidence that someone you know whoever all whoever might ac access that evidence whether it's an investigator or a policeman or either attorney that that no one tampered with that and then i think that would help with um you know w one side might object and and particularly the defense might object to the prosecution force them to prove that prove their chain of custody for a piece mm -hmm. of evidence. Um, I think blockchain would definitely help with that. Uh, as far as what courts are implementing that, um, from what I've researched, uh, I know the UK is doing that right now. They, they have a pilot court where they're testing, they're testing this blockchain system in the, in the chain of custody. And I've also seen Dubai is, is doing that too. Uh, they're, they're trying to implementing that in their courts. Okay. I don't really know the results of those. They're experimenting with it now, but it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Yeah, and I know China's uh, got an internet court that's also yeah. been incorporating, you know, expressly mentioning blockchain and yeah, that type yeah. of technology. Right. Um, but likewise, this and, seems to be like a slightly different use, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and as opposed to, you know, I, what we were talking about earlier, that's just 
blockchain records flowing into the cord from the way other people are using blockchains. Right. And right. I think that's and inevitable. The courts will have to, at some point, they're going to see. It's already happened. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is happening. At some point, they're going to see what, what the heck is, you know, what the heck is blockchain? What the heck is someone paid this guy in Bitcoin? What is that? And they need to figure out right. what that is. But what we're uh, talking about here, too, is the difference of not just being you know, these specialized courts or high level major cases likely to occur in federal courts. But eventually, as this technology becomes more and more available, more widely used, we're going to start seeing, I mean, just like with with everything else, we're going to start seeing these start to enter, you know, smaller courts, courts even in more rural areas like this could happen. The, the nature of this technology being Internet based it can happen anywhere, you know? So it's it's almost one of those situations where as we look forward, we're all going to have to adapt and we're all going to have to become better equipped to manage this, not just a select few courts in certain, you know, major markets where, you know, not just the Silicon Valley courts, not just New York City courts mm-hmm. um, because of the nature of the technology. So are courts ready to adopt technology like blockchain? on this kind of back-end administrative level. To use it as a tool? Yeah, to use it as a tool. I mean, I don't I don't know. They're just getting used to just using electronics as a tool. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, Improving the technical, yeah, yeah, the technical infrastructure. That's I a mean, real concern for a lot of courts. Yeah, I mean, not, not, I mean, even still, you know, they do a lot of things by paper still. That's, that's why I kind of figure, this is, this is really cool to talk about and it's cool to think of in, in this uh, area with the, the securing the chain of custody and mm-hmm. securing the authenticity of the evidence. But I mean, I just, it's hard for me to imagine that anytime soon courts are going to implement, actually implement this uh, right. on a full scale. Like you were talking about it, maybe in the, you know, the more technical courts and districts where this stuff comes up a lot, they might do it, but, but everywhere, right. I don't know. Or uh, some of these more places yeah. that are making an effort for one reason or another to experiment with yeah. this type of thing. But like you got, like you both have mentioned, there is costs associated. Exactly. Yeah. And when we're dealing with courts that are already cash strapped um, and are are having difficulty, you know, just getting the basics for their court and for litigants within their court. Yeah, it is. It is hard to imagine asking them to take this on above and beyond. But there is, I think, sometimes, and part of the argument here, as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the argument is that in the long term, adopting this type of technology helps cut down on costs, helps cut down on, you know, storing boxes of boxes. And if nothing else, the convenience, the time and the legitimacy costs. I know this is getting back into that theoretical, like, wouldn't it be nice world? Um, But, you know, improving the transparency of of records, improving the accessibility of records, Mm -hmm. kind of weighing that as part of the part of the equation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the biggest benefits of a court using this as a tool would be that that guarantee that the evidence you're seeing now is the same as the evidence that you put in right in the beginning and that would i mean maybe they would change the, the process a little bit to expedite um any kind of a, a objections to that to you know force one side to prove the chain of custody if, if you have that blockchain there and the court is pretty sure that it's they say let's just check the ledger and see right uh you know this this person this person this person accessed it this other person accessed it on this date and it's the same as when we originally put it in so you know the chain of custody checks out 
I think with theoretically that, could cut down on appeals yeah. or those types of problems that we see later down the road. Mm-hmm. And just a general, yeah, general court time. You, know, you don't need to exactly. wait, waste this time objecting to that. And there maybe, you know, they will, if they end up doing that and become, they become accustomed to it, it the objection would end up going away just because it would never succeed. Right. Um, but then again, would it never succeed? I mean, <laughs> as we talked about, you can, you know, blockchains, uh, even though they, they like to, we like to think of them as mutable. Are, are they really? No. Right. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was afraid that I'd have to yeah. you know, play the devil's advocate for you guys. So, you know, first of all, I think you're absolutely right. Courts, you know, are facing for just the document costs, documents right. in warehouses. You know, it's not beneficial. But I think that saying that we should jump to blockchain might almost be, you know, it's just building a better mousetrap. For instance... Mm you know, floating a hypothetical, you could also envision we scan all these, uh, you know, paper records into a database and just having them digitized would be such a great leap forward that, you know, I think we need to remember it's not an all or nothing, you know, it's not courts are here in the stone age and then let's jump them forward to blockchain. There can be a middle ground And, you know, while blockchain does have, you know, some use cases and definitely some very unique use cases, um, I think it is also fair to acknowledge that, you know, probably the average court could benefit just from, you know, having its stuff organized on a basic database. And then, um, you know, you you would have to set up a few permissions to make sure that chain of custody is adhered to. But, um, uh, you know, I'm hesitant to say that courts, which, as you already alluded to, are already cash strapped, you know, basically nationally um, would implement something that, you know, would require both a high level of technical skill um, that maybe you don't impose on judges and then at least an initial infrastructure investment that they Mm -hmm. probably wouldn't be willing to swallow. And especially, too, I think that, Scott, your point also, you know, very practical and and based in reality, also touches on, I think, this larger and even still more theoretical debate that's happening generally with within, you know, not just the legal field, within different industries about do we use blockchain? Oh, Is absolutely. blockchain the right thing to do? Or do we use some do we use some other type of distributed database that's not blockchain? Um, And I think that anyone who's encountering these issues or thinking about the legal issues of using blockchain, whether it's evidence, whether it's advising clients, whether it's a court thinking about using a blockchain, is inevitably, once you do that research, going to encounter that debate of people saying, yes, blockchain is the solution for X, Y, Z problems for, you know, to gain a lot of the benefits we've talked about today, and vice versa, people saying, no, blockchain works really well in some contexts, but really fervently arguing that there are some contexts, including I've read, uh, for instance, there was an article that I read just the uh, just the other day um, on Smart Deck talking about you do not need blockchain, talking <laughs> about popular use cases, including uh, authenticating physical information for exactly the reasons that we you both have discussed that 
Well, the blockchain may be right, but that doesn't mean. But the blockchain's the not IoT. You put into it is right. Right, it's uh-huh. not the Internet of Things. So just because, yeah, the blockchain's recorded that it was a bottle. Well, but the bottle could have been faked, Absolutely. and so the blockchain's right, but it's reflecting wrong information that exists in the real world. And life's, you know, same kind of thing for land records. But I think to be able to again engage in that debate. It's the same reason why we're here today talking about blockchain in general. There needs to be kind of that understanding of, okay, well, when, when I hear blockchain versus distributed database, how are those different? Like, a blockchain is a distributed ledger. What's the difference there? Absolutely. So, first of all, uh, you know, I think that to use the common saying, you know, when you have a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think huh. um, there has been a little bit of reaction blockchain, obviously in the news a lot, obviously spoken about a lot. And so there is kind of this reaction that, oh, blockchain is the new, you know, the new it girl. Let's use it in everything. Um, and I think a much more moderate approach is blockchain is one more tool in a toolbox. Mm. And so, you know, when you think of blockchain and you know, going back to a little earlier in our discussion, when you think of blockchain, it was originally created for transparency and uh, privacy. Transparency so you can trust people who you don't know, and mm. privacy so you can remain unknown while still trusting people. You see how both of those kind of work together, yeah. you have the privacy and the transparency. And so when you're looking at a solution that requires that, the perfect example being cryptocurrencies, online transactions with people you don't necessarily know, blockchain you know Mm -hmm. just screams use me and that makes a lot of sense now you move blockchain to a company setting and you know you have companies saying oh we're going to use blockchain why would anyone in a company need to be anonymous with someone else in the company you know Mm -hmm. so it 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 doesn't really seem to make sense and so uh, you can imagine scenarios in which you know that may make sense so let's let's talk about perhaps within a company you know you've got people who are are mandatory reporters or things like that are trying to preserve so you've got maybe a labor and employment discrimination situation in which that's a real problem for businesses people becoming whistleblowers so i mean i think it's possible to imagine scenarios where you can, you know, work through as a use case. Okay, does blockchain make sense here? But I think that you're right in saying, you know, it's tough to make blanket statements oh, absolutely. one way or another without identifying some of the objectives like we've been talking about today, um, like Alex is mentioning, the objectives of what the courts are trying to do when we're talking about using blockchain as an evidence record system or something like that. Yeah, I, I really like you pointing out, Scott, how the main purposes of blockchain were privacy and transparency and then you look at the current system implemented and you say oh well can blockchain really add right. are these things lacking in those two those two categories right. just and, because i can yeah. put it onto blockchain is that going to benefit anyone yeah yeah right. and i think anytime we're looking at what we can apply blockchain to you have to look at the current system and say are these are these things really uh you know, can these things really be benefited with more transparency and privacy? Is that what we want? And mm-hmm. if the answer is yes, then yeah, maybe blockchain is a good, uh, that is a ripe area for blockchain to be implemented. Absolutely. There's a, there's a sort of an adage in, a, you know, technology consulting, you know, you want to lead with the process and then figure out the technology that supports that process. 
And I think in that case, like you were describing with the mandatory reporters, you have a process and blockchain probably could be the technology to drive that process. But, you know, more often than not, in the news at least, it definitely seems like people are trying to lead with blockchain and yeah. then the process is being dragged along behind it. And, you know, I just, I don't think that's practical. For... Right. Innovating for the sake of innovation. Yeah. I think that that's such a good point. And, you know, as you said, there's with blockchain, like we've mentioned, there's a number of things that it does very well. The immutability, the transparency, the pseudonymity. Of yeah, the, no, absolutely. Um, it's a strong, uh, strong technology. And I think that this debate sometimes boils down to prioritizing. All right. Does blockchain working well in one of those areas? Is that sufficient to make it a good use application right. versus lots? And I think that that's something that the legal industry right now seems to be grappling with in these in these different ways. So I think that that I mean, this has been an excellent discussion, and I think that that's a really great place to end on. Um, still a lot of questions, but that's what we're here for is to figure out as much the answers as how to ask the right questions. And I think that that's what we add as lawyers to this to this discussion as technology meets business, meets law, meets everything else. So Alex, Scott, thank you again so much for being here. Uh, and a huge thank you to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, to hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. Uh, for more from CLCT, you can also find us on Twitter, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and on our website. All of those are going to be linked in the description of this episode. Last but not least, uh, just a word from... Uh, Thanking for the support that we've gotten from our grant with the Silicon Valley Community Foundation funded by Cisco Systems. Uh, we really appreciate the support, which has enabled us to do this podcast. So to everyone out there, thank you again for listening. Until next time, Exhibit AI. Exhibit AI.